Today I welcome Johnny Noakes, Director of Teaching and Learning at Eton College in the UK. In this episode, I found out more about Eton's Centre for Innovation, Research and Learning, the importance of character education, and how Eton X evolved towards future school thinking during the pandemic. It's the first time, surprisingly, that you and I have ever spoken, despite having a shared interest in the future of education, and at some point being joined by our forefathers on a ship somewhere, sharing exactly the same surname. So how we never met. You're quite right. Although, actually, I have heard you speak at some events, and I think I might even have said hello after one of them, but I didn't tell you that we shared the same name, so you had no reason to remember it was me. I think, does, do you have a memory of speaking at a school in Guildford about eight years ago, something like that? I'm pretty sure that that, that was it. Guildford Grammar, I think it was. Anyway. Yeah, it was. So I said hello after that. So you, you have met me briefly once. Well, good. Well, I'm glad I passed it across. And probably about eight years ago was when, you know, you kicked off the cell, so, which we're going to get into anyway. You're the executive director of the Tony Little Centre for Innovation and Research and Learning, CERL which facilitates cutting-edge research into learning. Why was it important and necessary to set up CERL in the first place? And what is its primary purpose? CERL acts as a kind of nerve centre for the interesting ideas about teaching and learning that are going on around the world. So part of our purpose is to horizon scan, make sure that we're aware of interesting developments, that we're taking a look at them, perhaps trying them out, bringing them back, and I tell my colleagues about them. Because, you know, we can get very caught up in our day-to-day lives without keeping enough of an eye on the changes that are going on. So that's part of the purpose. The other part of of our purpose is to be working alongside our colleagues on their professional development, particularly in evidence-informed practice. What led you to your interest in pedagogy? Well, really, because skillful pedagogy is obviously at the heart of the whole teaching and learning process. And like all teachers, I'm always looking to expand my repertoire, as are my colleagues. And I'm also aware that good pedagogy is about much more than skillful technique. You were saying before that uh, relationships and psychology are at the heart of good teaching. I really like actually the Steve Higgins, what Steve Higgins is called the Bananarama principle, that it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. I tell my colleagues to bear that in mind whenever we're trying to implement some finding from research. I was lucky to have some really outstanding teachers when I was at school, and what they all had in common I think was probably three things. One was a complete passion for their subject. Uh, Secondly, was an ability to communicate that passion. And thirdly, was the fact that they really cared about the young people who were in front of them. So, uh, you know, I partially agree, actually, with Dylan Williams, who said that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's probably true. But I do also think that excellent subject knowledge is important to winning the trust and the respect of the pupils that you are teaching. Pedagogy change enormously and you you must have seen a huge shift during your own teaching career maybe a huge increase or change in the last eight years since you've been running CERL what are your thoughts and observations about how pedagogy has changed and how much of that is the need to adjust to society and how much of it is agendas which are maybe more governmental or policy well certainly there are shifts and changes afoot And some of those are driven by government. So, for instance, the interest in character education, the interest in evidence-informed practice, both of which the government has been promoting. I don't think there have been drastic shifts in how people go about teaching, but there is an increasing research base about pedagogy, and there's certainly an increasing interest among teachers in informing their practice with good quality research findings, which is one reason why the centre that I run was set up. 
I think what's interesting is that the available research of the kind that's been synthesized, for instance, by John Hattie into effect sizes, perhaps shows, unsurprisingly, that traditional teaching methods are indeed effective. That's why teachers have always thought so. So to some degree, actually, this innovation has supported some quite traditional methods. But it's done more than that. It's done something more interesting than that. Um, sometimes the evidence causes you to refine what you do. You might know that giving feedback is very powerful, but it's helpful to know how to give feedback, and there's good evidence about that. And sometimes, actually, the evidence supports uh, changing the way that one goes about teaching because, in fact, it runs counter to the sorts of things that we think work. So an example there would be that, and this is particularly true of the way that students study, when they're trying to memorize something, when they're revising, they tend to think that the techniques that feel like they're having the fastest progress are the most effective when they almost certainly aren't because we know from the available evidence that learning is hard cognitive work. It actually involves a sort of restructuring of the brain in lots and lots of tiny little ways. So there are certain things you can do which Bjork has called desirable difficulties which feel like you're not making progress very quickly but which actually embed the learning much more strongly. So I think it's quite interesting the way that this shift towards evidence-informed practice that I'm so interested in has in some ways supported what we've always known, in some ways caused us to refine what we've always known, and in some ways has caused us to correct what we thought we knew into something that actually is more accurate to the facts. Therefore, I think you know, what's going on here is that we have a clearer sense of what works and why it works. And I do think nowadays teachers generally are more likely to have a wider repertoire of ideas to draw upon, partly because so much has been published on this, partly because, for instance, research ed is so popular. Um, you know, teachers are much more aware than they were even 10 years ago of the kind of uh, research underpinnings for their practice. So I think that's probably been the, the primary shift, and that's been encouraged by the government. And how much of this gets accessed from outside of Eton, or is Eton the major benefactor for everything that comes out of Searle? Because there is obviously a, a view about education being available to everybody, and obviously you're driving the think tank, the research. But is it accessible, and does anybody, and can anybody get access to this? Yes, I mean, on the one hand, we do do some research of our own, but it's quite small scale, and we wouldn't claim that it has relevance to all other schools. It tells us something interesting um, about our own environment, although we are beginning to research across schools in resilience, for instance, and we make all that research freely available to anyone who'd like to see it. But really, you know, most of the research that is being done is being done outside of the course and is being done across the world. Uh, there's a lot of it, quite a lot of it is really good quality, and that's freely available to everyone. What we tend to do, teachers are very busy and they don't always have time to go to the primary research or indeed to want to. So what we tend to do, as do many others, is to look for the most promising ideas, synthesize it, perhaps write it up in a blog, uh, write it up in a journal, which we publish twice a year, and we make these things freely available on our website. So we try to play our part, if you like, in passing on the most promising ideas to busy teachers in a form that they can easily digest and use. And if you found the research papers that's come out of Searle, can the whole of the UK education system benefit from it possibly? Can the state sector absolutely implement it in an effective, structured way? Probably not. Can the private sector in the UK possibly again? And they do. And I just wondered again whether or not outside of the UK, whether it's America, the Far East or Middle East, whether there are pockets that have gone, do you know what, this is just what we can do and we can run with it faster because we don't necessarily have the governance in place that's preventing maybe a, a wider rollout. Yeah, although I do think actually education is pretty tightly controlled by governments pretty much the world over. 
But absolutely, I mean, we were finding ourselves contacted by schools from all over the world. This was even several years ago, just when character education was becoming, you know, a kind of dominant theme in uh, the thinking of educators worldwide. Um, they were contacting us, as indeed I'm sure they were contacting other UK uh, schools and particularly boarding schools to say, we hear that in the UK, you're really good at this character stuff. So you know, tell us what do you do and how do you do it? And actually, that was quite an interesting challenge because although at a school like Eton, where we have the pupils here 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they actually spend most of their time outside the classroom, character education has always been a real theme of what we do. Defining what we do and how we do it and how we know we do it well was actually, it, it required a level of awareness and reflection and rigor that we hadn't previously applied. So one reason why we did the various uh, character studies that we did do a few years ago was partly to get a greater awareness of what do we really value? Are we actually teaching what we say we value? And could we be teaching it more effectively than we do? So we did quite a lot of that kind of self-reflective work, and we're now in a much better position to talk about what matters to us. Just for my listeners, what is character education? Why is character education important? Well, character education refers really to a huge basket of qualities, dispositions. We tend to call them dispositions and skills rather than traits, because traits would suggest that you're either born with them or without them. But these are learnable dispositions. And there are all kinds of ways in which you, you can divide them up. So, for instance, the, the centre, the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues in Birmingham, divides them up using a classical model into four areas, all of which feed into this idea of practical wisdom, which in turn leads to uh, personal and societal flourishing. They can be intellectual virtues, they can be performance virtues, you know, like perseverance and motivation, they can be moral virtues, and they can be civic virtues. Those are the four that that particular model takes. And there are lots of other ways of putting a framework around them. In other words, character education is very broad. And the reason why they matter is that they are right at the heart of personal fulfillment and good quality relationships and civic responsibility. So that actually, if you want to have, and of course we do, if you want to have personal flourishing and societal flourishing, really character is the way in there. Um, so that's why it's so important. And this isn't new, of course. I mean, you know, the teaching of character has been a part of education systems for millennia, actually, going right back to classical times and probably before that too. So this isn't new, but the emphasis on character education is quite new, especially in the UK, but this is something going on all over the world. Um, and really, it's a recognition that we have perhaps, some people would say certainly, given too great a prominence to quite a narrow band of cognitive abilities. And instead, what we need to be doing is, alongside those very important cognitive skills and academic scholarship, we need to be able to say that we are teaching children the broader skills and traits which will lead to fulfillment and a happy life. Is there an easy way to prioritise these character dispositions? You know, are some better than others and some more important than others? Or are they all equal and we've just got to get through the list and, and teach kids on them? They're not all equal. That's to say every uh, school and indeed every social group will have its own priorities. So I think really the important point here is not to try to, if you like, to give everything priority. There's simply too much there. But for a school to decide which are the priorities for that school, and there's a really interesting conversation to be had there. I was quite interested, for instance, when we were doing this work at Eton, this work we did both with adult staff, uh, teaching and non-teaching, and boys, that we, had, we started with quite a, a lot of focus groups to try to work out which character skills and virtues we wanted to actually 
focus on. We gave ourselves a maximum of 30. Boys were very keen we should include competitiveness as a character virtue. I wasn't sure that in itself it's a virtue, although you know, things like perseverance and ambition are. We put it in anyway. And actually, interestingly, in our survey work of the whole community, it came out last. That's to say, it's the kind of thing everyone thought everyone valued, but actually it's not what they really valued. And qualities like kindness and generosity and gratitude came up much higher in what we actually value. So every group has to work out for itself what is it valued. But there are ways in which you can get help with this. So, for instance, there's a, an influential paper from 2013 by two economists, actually, um, Heckman and Kautz, who argued several things. One was that the teaching of character, particularly at primary age, as important for life success and fulfillment as the academic teaching that the most schools focus on. But they went on to argue that there are certain character qualities which are admired pretty well across the world. And this includes things like perseverance, uh, trust, self-control, um, self-esteem, resilience to adversity, uh, you know, humility, tolerance, these sorts of things. No surprises there, perhaps. So one could always start with a, a kind of universal list. Because, of course, as soon as you start talking about character values, people do want to know whose values you're talking about. But that's, that's a discussion for every school to have and to decide on. And is it important or can it be measured at all? Because, you know, just like anything in the world, you put things into motion and somebody somewhere wants it measured, whether it's the parent body. OK, this all sounds good, but how do I measure whether or not my son or my daughter is actually any good or doing well at this? Or do you not measure it? And it's, I don't know. Again, I'd be very interested to know, again, how do you counter the, the measurement and the league table argument on character education? It's a really interesting question, because as you say, if a school says we value something and therefore we're going to focus on teaching it, it would be remiss not to have any kind of measurement of whether you are succeeding in teaching it. It becomes more problematic if you're going to make that competitive, because of course, if you, for instance, say, we value uh, kindness in our community. The last thing you want is children competing to seem more kind just because it's being measured. So that's, that's a kind of you know, the nightmare you don't want. Nevertheless, it's perfectly possible for a school to say we value these. We will focus on how we teach them. We will measure whether we are having an effect, but we won't make it a competition between the children or the students to see whether we've succeeded in doing it. All these character traits are teachable. That's the first thing, and that's crucial. Secondly, we know a lot more about how to teach them than we did 10 or 15 years ago because so much work has been done in this area by universities primarily. So Harvard, for instance, focusing on caring, Pennsylvania focusing on optimism and so on. So there's been a lot of work on these areas, leadership at Oxford. So there's a lot that we can turn to in the form of research. And there are also validated scales. So if you do decide that it really matters to measure whether, for instance, you're measuring an intervention to see whether it works or not, so you're actually going to create a kind of research exercise, and you need to have a validated scale, a scale that, first of all, you can be confident is measuring the thing you're trying to measure, and secondly, you know it does it reliably, then yes, these scales do exist. However, they tend to be quite long, sometimes quite complex, and you certainly wouldn't be trying to measure a lot of character skills all the time. It would become overbearing. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. With any research centre, you also judged on outcomes. What's the biggest finding or change the Innovation Centre has led so far? We've found some quite interesting findings in our research, but as I've said, you know, we wouldn't make claims for the validity of that finding beyond our own community. 
So, for instance, we found, for instance, that if you teach growth mindset to 16, 17-year-olds, it does make them more, not only does it make them more growth mindset, but to understand the theory, it makes them actually play it out more, but it actually makes them more pro-social, which was something we were very interested in exploring in a very academically competitive environment. So we thought that was an interesting finding. It makes them more willing to help others, essentially, partly because they realized that their ability isn't a fixed thing. And you develop your abilities by practicing them. And actually, one of the best ways to practice something or to master it is to help someone else with it. So it, it was a slight shift in their, their, how they regarded their own abilities there. We also found an interesting finding in terms of happiness. We were trying to see whether there was a correlation between boys' academic success and their happiness using a validated scale, boy by boy, across over a 1,000 boys. And we found no correlation at all, which quite surprised us. But what we did find with a single snapshot of five boys which was this, that each year group had a higher happiness score than the year group below. Now, that wasn't a longitudinal study. We can't claim from that that a group of boys got happier during their time here. But it was an interesting finding, especially in the context of mental health problems in teenage years, because the worldwide, actually, on the whole, happiness measures go down during teenage years. So we dug into that data a little bit to find out what was driving it. And the boys told us, uh, this was in a randomized sample, the boys told us that uh, the four things most driving their sense of happiness were, first of all, their social connections. Secondly, a sense of gratitude. Thirdly, a sense of competence that we were stretching them, but they did feel they could do what we were asking them to do. And lastly, a sense of autonomy that we were giving them increasing freedom. Now, that's a finding that's interesting to us as a school because we can then implement making sure that we're making those four things even more prominent in the boys' lives. We have been playing around quite a lot with IT in teaching and learning. I say playing around in the sense of trying stuff, trying ed tech, small scale trials, which we then build up when something looks promising. And we have actually rolled out uh, iPads as a teaching and learning tool across the whole school. And we have found that that has, although it does raise some particular issues that we then have to make sure we have an answer to, we found that it does aid certain aspects of teaching and learning hugely, particularly around workflow, around checking for understanding during the course of a lesson, and collaboration between pupils. So I think the work that we've done there has been particularly interesting. We haven't yet been able to publish on it because COVID got in the way and the impact of everyone having to go online, if you like, completely muddied the waters of trying to test the impact of bringing in the iPads. The fact that you're testing it, I think, is the right way of doing it. And I find too many schools buy technology and it becomes a marketing tool because, like, yeah, it's one-to-one iPads, right? Suddenly it feels like we're, you know, this is innovation. Like we are really forward-thinking school. I'm going, well, didn't teach them know how to use it. And you look at the way they use it, and then suddenly we, we were thrown online. And some schools were doing very well online before we went through the pandemic. But then you see the use of it, and it was poor. It's not something that teachers know how to do. And so it comes back to this, technology is a lever. It's an enabler. It can't be the driver that you put in front and go, this is going to solve all of our pedagogical and teaching problems, right? We can now teach because we have an iPad. It's just another tool, like a chalkboard or a chalk or something. I can go... I'm going to make my lesson more immersive. I'm going to use it for this. And it's interesting you talk about workflow. I think that's the bit that we've got to get right. How can we streamline things and make that more efficient? And I think schools went that way during the pandemic because they were forced to. It was like, we have to do it all online. But there were so many inefficiencies that led to burnout because we were just incapable and not trained enough. Which kind of leads me into the next question, just around how do you bring all the research into teaching? Because there's some great findings. and then. Also, you've got to get your teaching body on board, you know, and it's constantly, oh, Johnny's knocking at the door. I've got a new idea. We, got, we want a trial. How does that go down and, and how do you manage that amount of change within the school? 
Well, you're absolutely right, of course. And the last thing you want to be doing is continually badgering very busy colleagues. You've got their work cut out for them just to be doing what they're already doing. But on the other hand, if you can show them that actually there are some exciting ideas out there and some exciting platforms, some exciting methods, actually a lot of it is very easily adoptable. And basically you serve it to them in a way which they can easily see the relevance and use for. Then I think you you can find a way in. I mean, to be honest with you, we have taken an approach which is designed to hook my colleagues' interests where they want to be hooked. So that's to say we we lay on a a huge amount of professional development, which is opt-in, in addition to stuff that all staff do. And in essence, what we're trying to do is to answer problems that they may have or questions they may have. The sorts of things that we offer is, I'll speak to heads of department about whether the department as a whole is wrestling with a particular issue. And I will create a professional development session with the head of department or their delegates so that we know that it's going to meet a need. We make sure um, also that any theory that I, um, as an English teacher, but with my research hat on, bring to the table, they then interpret for themselves. I don't try to teach colleagues in other disciplines how to teach their subject. Um, that would have no credibility. So that's, that's one way about it. We have, as you'd expect, things like fortnightly uh, discussions about a particular text. We have professional learning groups who meet over a period of maybe two terms at least to look at an issue that particularly interests them. We've just closed one of those that was looking at marking an assessment over two terms and then fed back to all our colleagues. That's an interesting example, actually. We ran a professional development session that was compulsory for all staff, for all the teaching staff, on marking an assessment, on the reckoning that that was going to be relevant to pretty well all of them. And the feedback we had was it was a hugely useful session. Well, you know, we picked marking assessment because we were sure it would be. And really what was most valuable about that was the professional learning group who were feeding back were their colleagues talking to colleagues and they themselves in the group spanned something like five different departments. So, you know, you get past the credibility problem of an outsider coming in or past person who teaches one discipline, talking to people who teach other disciplines and so on. So colleagues talking to colleagues in almost any form, if it's not a professional learning group and a feedback session, it might be structured lesson observations, which we set up. We ask colleagues to look at doing action research and we support them through it if they want to do it. I know they haven't got time for any of that, just to get them doing some kind of solo reflection and then perhaps some kind of output from that. So our, our most recent journal, which we published twice a year, was on reflections on teaching and learning. And 14 of my colleagues wrote a piece about how they have been reflecting on their own practice and how they've made changes. And those sorts of reflections actually go down very well with colleagues. There's always something there that colleagues will find interesting. Opportunities in education are unfortunately not equal. And historic schools like Eton often get tarred with the same brush of entitlement and privilege living in the private sector. Eton has educated 20 prime ministers, widening this gap further. How does the work you're doing go wider than the Eton bubble? And how does this become something that is valuable for the rest of the state set or maybe other schools around the UK? Well, it's a really good question. And it's a question that we ask ourselves all the time, by which I mean, uh, I mean, examples would be, we currently have over 100 boys on 100% fee remission, and we're looking to build that to 140. So that's 10% of the whole school. We share resources. So for instance, we have a digital arm called EatonX. We had developed actually originally to sell courses overseas. But during COVID, we just made all of those courses available to UK state schools for free, and some 30,000 children took them. So that's a way of sharing some of our resources. We are in partnership with various schools, especially locally through a Thames Valley Learning Partnership, and we feed into that, as do the other partner schools. We don't want this to be unequal partnership. And more recently, we've put in place a very ambitious aim, 
which is to build three new free school sixth forms in areas of high deprivation of the Midlands and the North. And we will bid for DfE funding to do that in collaboration with Star Academies in the coming months. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what about the research part? How can you kind of have that longitudinal kind of data where you go outside of Eton and road test your hypotheses and look at the insights and see actually whether or not happiness is grounded on those four traits or outcomes that you got from those boys? And then if you moved it down the road to one of your partner schools, to Hollyport, or whether you went further afield, whether you went further up north, does it change depending on other factors? You throw data at it and it's just insight. You know, we kind of get the feedback and then you go, this is quite interesting. These boys have come back or these girls have come back with something different. Is it because of location, economic, status, cultural? There's lots of those things. So is Cell going to be rolled out or is it rolled out in other parts of the country? I can answer that question in two ways, actually. One is what we've done so far, and the other is what we are going to do next. So what we've done so far, we started when we first opened just doing research with our own boys. We then gradually broadened that. So, for instance, we ran a resilience project across year nine pupils from 10 schools, state and independent, it was mixed half and half, uh, to see whether we were successful in teaching resilience. And we got promising results from that, even though the final data gathering wasn't possible because the schools were shut because of COVID. What we then did in response to some feedback we had from some state school partners was to develop a course in academic resilience because we got the feedback, actually our pupils are pretty personally resilient already, but they're much less academically resilient. They give up very easily with difficult academic challenges. So we developed a course in academic resilience, which we then taught a multi-campus sixth form in London called Christ the King. And that's now in its second iteration and we got evidence in for the impact of that. So there's an example of how we started working across other schools in very different environments from Eton and trying to meet their needs and getting uh, some kind of feedback on the impact that we were having. A second example, very briefly, is a leadership institute, which we run both for Etonians and for pupils at another part of school, which is the London Academy of Excellence. And we have taken measurement of the impact of that on the pupils from both schools. And we set up a leadership, leadership institute, which will work into the future to do that. So that's the sort of stuff we've done so far. But we're going to now to gear all that up. I've mentioned that we are aiming to build, if we can get the funding, three uh, six forms. Part of the f- design of this is that each of these schools will have a centre like the one I run at Eton. It may not be as physically big, but it will be there and there'll be someone who has the position that I have. And the way in which these schools will relate with each other is through a network of these research and innovation centres. And they'll be very concerned with evidence-informed practice and they'll be very concerned with measuring impact and very concerned with professional development. And there, the opportunity for all kinds of research uh, studies which go across schools and very different learning environments, is the opportunity is wonderful. I mean, we really look forward to doing some interesting cross-sector research in the future through this network of cells. Yeah, I can imagine with your interest and passion, that is something you can't wait to get involved in. I want to get to EtonX because I love the concept of EtonX. And actually, Eton is one of the few independent schools UK that have not sold out their brand to franchise around the world. In my view of education, isn't actually improving education, it's profiteering. Harvard X was the first, so Harvard went and everyone could go, wow, this is great, this partnership between Harvard and MIT, which started to make great resources and knowledge and access to information and subjects more available and people could kind of access it from anywhere, leveraging technology, the MOOC framework, why did Eton go down the route of Eton X? And tell me how successful it's been. 
you've already really touched on our reason why, which is that we didn't want to franchise our name. And anything we did try to capture about Eaton and then, if you like, offer to a wider audience, we wanted to have control over. Um, so that's why we decided that we would try to do it online. So we created EatonX as a company that we own. And EatonX, we focused initially at least, it's been to change this now, but initially it focused largely on character education. So things like resilience. And we then moved into university preparation, character skills, but also practical skills for writing your CV and interview skills and so on. And all of this was with an eye to reaching an audience for whom this might be a useful supplement to the education that they were already getting. So um, we're actually focusing much more on the UK audience now. I've mentioned that we made our courses freely available to state schools during COVID, and we continue to make them freely available. So EatonX has become, and the courses we've designed, which we are proud of, have become a part of our public benefit. And we are now increasingly focusing not just on character and university entrance, but increasingly we're going to focus on academic subjects as well. And we will make this one part of the way in which we provide for our partner schools. Yeah, and that sits really squarely with how I see the future of education. You know, you talked about great teachers and they're infused and you feel the passion when they love their subject. But not every teacher is like that. We kid ourselves thinking in every school across the land, across the world, every child is getting inspired education. I've witnessed this with all my four children in different parts of different schools. But they don't. They fall in and out of love of a subject based on who's in front of them. And it should never be that way. You should never love German one year and then the next year think it's the worst subject that's ever crossed your path. So you have a framework now and a wonderful brand to be able to be a platform for this wider educational benefit. And one of it is putting, you know, my idea was all around having, I'm calling the super teachers. It's having inspiring subject leaders. The pandemic forced people to the front and there was a big recognition that some really self-starting, passionate teachers created these channels. And they had millions and millions of subscribers because parents were getting, they were losing the plot because the teacher in front of them was not capable because they didn't understand technology, wasn't their thing, of teaching the subject. Is there a way in which we can bring other teachers into a framework like EtonX to help be brilliant and inspire lots of people as one piece? And that's subject-based or content-based. And then the second part was you talked about workflow because once you're inspired, you still need it's almost like a tutor model. I'm inspired by it, but how do I do it? And there's two different things. I wonder what your thoughts are around that as a model. You're absolutely right. That If we can capture the brilliance of passionate teachers, that's really what we would love to do. We have actually done quite a lot of work on how one does this online, because the online platforms provide you on the one hand with the enormous benefit of reach. But on the other hand, you don't have the live presence of the teacher building a relationship with you personally. There are, you know, there's a gain and a loss. Um, how to capture making the full use of the benefits of the online platform is really a question that we've been spending quite a lot of time on, and we've done quite a lot of research into that for our own benefit. We are interested in broadening who we involve in the production of the Next courses. We don't think it's necessary that there are always course directed by Eaton teachers, for instance, or that all the content comes from Eaton teachers. There are so many brilliant teachers spread all over the UK, so we should be bringing those in as well identifying them, trying to bring them in is part of what we're going to be doing next. And apart from anything, as we gear ourselves up to be teaching across a wider group of partner schools, that will place quite a big burden on colleagues here at Eton unless we involve teachers from a wider range than just within our own walls, if you like. So it's something we aim to do. 
And we're trying to work out exactly how you do it successfully to make the full use of the benefits of online education without some of the loss that can entail from not having a live presence. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen that burnout happen with us being remote. You know, after a while, you cannot replace human to human. There is some kind of melting pot that some kids can learn better. Maybe it's following the work world right now, which is hybrid. There is no choice. We don't have a choice as employers now. We have to offer this because it's just normal. If someone can do their job, they choose that I can work from a remote island. Well, that's their choice. Can they do the job? Yes. So it's really interesting time. And I think we had this petri dish of innovation and challenge and change during the pandemic. And now I think the strength of education should be better because we, hopefully we're not going to go back to the ways we've always done it and turn back the clock. We'll learn from some of the great things that came out and how can we actually make a bigger positive impact to education. I'm really keen to get involved. So again, if there's any kind of workshops, steering groups, think tanks, I'm always keen to get involved and listen to brilliant minds and also to contribute. So we'd love to get you involved. I love all the stuff you're doing. So I love Eternex as a whole principle. And yeah, and good luck with everything you do with the Research Centre. Thank you very much. And lovely to talk to you. Yeah, thanks ever so much for your time. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.